0: Whenever I meet chimpanzees, I always wonder what happened, that they are behind one side of the bars and I am on the other side, because it's a little twist somewhere in history, and and the odds might have been the other way around, that we would have been in cages and they would be outside. eh?
1: What have the animals done for us? My name is Olga, and I've been wondering about that question for a really long time and the Other 5 Billion podcast is my way of answering it and sharing with you what I found out along the way. Hey everybody. Well, today we're talking about chimpanzees, who genetically are our closest relatives. But that doesn't mean that we've made lives easy for them. Far from it, in fact. According to our good friends at the IUCN, who monitor this species for the red list, the chimpanzee is considered an endangered species. And while we, the humans, now have a population of something like 7.6 billion, the population of chimpanzees globally is actually much less than just a million. Now a million might actually sound a lot, but what you might not know is that there's not just one species of the chimpanzee, there's a whole bunch of subspecies. And in those subspecies, some of them are actually down to just the last few hundred individuals. Now, in this episode, it's not really my intention to go into those details too much further. But I think it is important to know that even though there are many efforts to counter this loss, it looks like their population, which is mainly in West Africa and Central Africa in the dense jungle, is still declining. And unsurprisingly, that decline is because of human activity. We poach chimpanzees for bushmeat. There's a lot of habitat being lost as the jungles get cut down and turned into agricultural land. And chimpanzees are quite susceptible to a lot of infectious diseases. So for example, the Ebola virus, which they can get just like us, is thought to have wiped out about a third of their population since the 1990s. With that backdrop alone, This episode coming up does make for some uncomfortable but really important listening. What I feel now that I've gotten to know a lot more about chimpanzees in today's world is just how unfortunate these guys are to be so much like us. It's our fascination and our exploitation because of our likeness to them that has actually landed chimpanzees in some frankly, really bizarre situations, some of which just verge on science fiction, frankly. Now, even ancient tribes, not just us, used to take chimpanzees from the wild and keep them as things like pets or for entertainment. But in the 20th century, like a lot of things, trade and the use of these animals just reached another scale that was unimaginable before. Many, many were captured and they were trafficked out of Africa. How many? We will probably never, ever know. And they ended up in things like circuses, being entertainers, and they ended up like pets. Some, and in fact thousands and thousands of them, became laboratory animals. And that means that they would go into a lab and they would be infected with pretty nasty things, things like HIV, for example, for research purposes. And then of course, we did send some chimpanzees into space. Now, thankfully for some of those chimpanzees, there were happier times after they were taken out of their situations. And that is the focus of this episode. You're going to hear my interview with David Van Henep. Now, David is the executive director of AAP or Stitching AAP. An AAP is a rescue and rehabilitation organisation. It's got two centres. There's one in the Netherlands and there's another one in Spain. And aside from working directly with these chimpanzees that have been lab animals or have been working in circuses or kept as pets, and also other exotic animals like tigers and lions, the team at AAP also gets involved in influencing changes in public policy when it comes to do with wild animals. Just as one example, they've been really instrumental in getting a ban on the use, not a very nice word, the use of chimpanzees in laboratories in the Netherlands. So that was really, really big and David will talk about that more. And right now, they're campaigning to get the EU to implement a ban on wild animals being used in circuses. So if you live in the European Union, then please do have a read of that petition. And if you agree that this is the kind of thing that you feel strongly about, you can sign it. And I think they need 100,000 signatures for this to go a little bit further and hopefully achieve something. And the link to that's in the show notes. Now, back to the interview. It's fair to say that David is really quite exceptional. He's one of the most positive, and I'd say entrepreneurial people I've met in the field of animal welfare and conservation probably ever. Imagine staying an optimist when you spent your career seeing things like chimpanzees locked up behind bars in pharmaceutical labs and they know exactly what is gonna happen to them next time that a person in a white lab coat enters that space. Well, again, from that backdrop to the positive things that David and his organization have done, the AAP communications team actually helps me to illustrate the kind of things that they do and the kind of transition a chimpanzee goes through by letting me have some backstories of a couple of um, the chimpanzees that live in their centre. So to see those, just go to the show notes, go to other5billion.com and click on this episode about chimpanzees and it's all there, really lovely. It's really going to make a big difference to how you hear this episode, I think. That's enough rambling for me. Let's hear from a real expert. So let's go to our interview that recorded just over a week ago with David.
0: Good morning, this is David speaking.
1: Hey, good morning, David. How are you?
0: I'm fine. And how are you yourself?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also good. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I bet you are really busy. So should we get started straight away? Actually, what is it that you're up to today? Oh,
0: uh, a very busy day. Uh, last night I was in a TV program in the Netherlands, and there's some follow-up to be done there. There's been a, a Lion Cup that was abandoned a few days ago, and uh, it's not with us, but with a colleague organization. But still, we are pretty much involved in that whole case, in trying to find out where it comes from. So, yeah, there's, there's enough to be done.
1: And it's gone to the Lion Foundation in the Netherlands, hasn't it, this Lion Cup?
0: Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. In the Netherlands, we don't hold a contract for uh, big cats in, um, in Spain, uh, we do, and in France in practice, and in Germany as well, but in the, the Netherlands, it hardly have ever happened. so we, uh, the government contracted another organization for um, that kind of work, and also their facilities are more specialized for lions in the, in the Netherlands, that is. Uh, so uh, it's very good off there. I hope that uh, they'll find a proper way to send it to a final destination. And it seems to be that um, they'll be sending it to South Africa, which could be, uh, if they have a good recipient there, that could be good news. So let's see.
1: Hi, it's me again. So at this stage, I just wanted to take a moment and I wanted to explain a little bit of what's been discussed in case it's not too familiar to you. So what David just described here when he mentioned contracts for taking or not taking various animals into a rescue center is that it's quite common these days for governments and their agencies like the customs office to select centers like AAP or the Lion Foundation that we mentioned to be called into action when there's a wild animal found that needs help just like that blind cup. So this selected center with a contract gets called, and they're the ones that take in, they care for, and then have a part in deciding the future of this animal. And officially speaking, this happens when the animal is confiscated by the authorities from someone that's keeping it, and it becomes essentially the property of the state, as I understand it in most cases. So, all of that, to explain it, it's a whole episode in its own right. And I do plan to put that together at some point in the future. Because I think it's actually really important that you do know what goes on in a section of our world that we rarely see. You know, I only started to understand this when I started going to sanctuaries. I'm going to leave it there for now, but something that you do need to know is that actually this is a massive problem and um, in the european union for example the sanctuaries and the rescue centers that can take these animals are actually operating at over capacity and so that starts to give you a sense that there are many many lost little lion cubs out there somewhere close to us maybe in our backyards without their parents just being passed around in boxes and cages and that's exactly why centers like app are set up let's go back to the interview and rejoin david Well, David, again, thank you so much for doing this interview. Let's find out more about you, about your organization, all the chimpanzees that you shared your life with and anything else you want to tell us.
0: No, well, I'm honored that you uh, give so much air time. So uh, the feeling is mutual. So that's, that's good.
1: So could we just start with you letting us know your name and what it is that you do?
0: So my name is David van Gennep, I'm the executive director of AAP, which is Animal Advocacy and Protection in the Netherlands, but we also work in Spain, and my work is mainly, mainly has to do with policy work, so my work is mainly to deal with governments and with civil servants all over Europe to see if we can improve animal welfare through, um, well, improved legislation and the enforcement of legislation, so that's what I mainly do.
1: So, you know, I really liked your LinkedIn profile. How you described yourself there felt very honest and humble to me. So you say where you came from, you said what you do and why. And of course, you know, I know your work a little bit, and I say that you've really achieved a lot. So could you give our listeners a summary of your career?
0: I'm a biologist from origin, but even before I started to study biology, I worked as a volunteer for AAP. And um, it was really the organization that if you would have woken me up in the middle of the night when I was four years old, probably I would have said, I want to do something like this, because this was my dream. And this was something I really felt I was made for. So when I got to learn about AAP when I was pretty young, 17, 18, I thought, well, I really want to go there. I really want to be involved in that kind of work. So when I had the opportunity through a friend of mine to join as a volunteer, I immediately grabbed that opportunity and uh, I started to work there. And that was that was mainly on the technical part. So at daytime, I was constructing cages and building things and repairing materials. And then uh, later on in the day, I helped feeding and cleaning the cages and so on. So I was really more on the practical side of things. But when time went by, uh, I studied biology, and my connection to AAP got a little bit less. But then at some point, I finished my studies, and um, I started to work as a civil servant for the Dutch government, and then a phone call came from my old friend who had previously brought me in as a volunteer, and he said, well, our founders are doing pretty bad. Their health is going the wrong way, um, they're getting older. Would it be an idea if you and I had a talk about the future of AAP and see if we can Work together in that. So I never, I'll never forget that dinner because that really changed my life. And so we had a, a little dinner, and during the dinner, he said, "Well, actually, the board and me were thinking that you might be the candidate to pick up where they, at at some point, will have to let go." So that's what what happened. So I went to my employer the next day and I said, "Well, I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity that you gave me to work here, but I have something else that came my way." and that's really uh, uh, something I want to perceive so I quit my job and uh, I became a full-time volunteer at AAP because there was no money to pay for a salary and um, and then the founders were still in so they w- we worked with three of us actually and those days it was pretty difficult work the, the work was it uh, was tough there was no money to pay for the the, the groceries uh, the vegetables we had to beg for our food and everything was difficult so I thought well this is going to be a problem, so I started to develop a plan to do more about fundraising because without the proper means, it's very difficult to improve animal welfare. So I started to raise funds, sort of begging with all kind of rotary clubs and lion clubs and all the all kind of service clubs to see if, if someone was willing to sponsor a computer or uh, some like uh, some furniture or some other things, and that gradually picked up. So at some point the money started to come in and I was able to hire a new staff member. And that was something someone I'm still pretty much friends with. So he um, he started to work with us and then a little bit more money came in. I could hire a new person to do part of the work. So And that gradually grew. Me, myself, I was still a volunteer. So my salary was still not being paid for, but I could hold on for a little bit more. And that's how with a small team of very, very dedicated people, we started to build up the organization actually from scratch because the intentions had always been very, very good, but there had never been the, the money to really uh, uh follow up. So actually that's how we got where we are now. So yeah.
1: Gosh, wow. <laughs> well I had no idea that in the beginning it was just just you between Well, the centre working and I guess nothing. So tell me, had you not stepped in, what would have happened then?
0: Yeah, well, for the board, it was at that moment, it was either find someone who really wants to give it a kick or just uh, let's stop this because there was no future as it was. And uh, and also the the organisation where we were at that time, we had to move because the city council had decided that we had to move. Cause there was construction or uh, construction coming up for that area. So there were all kinds of problems and actually one thing really changed. It was uh, was a really game changer. That was that I, I wrote a letter to some TV companies and I said, well, every day at my organization is television and I would like you to come and film what we are doing and to see if we can make some exposure, create some more exposure on Dutch television and well, four out of five agencies, they really laughed at me and they thought that I was a, well, <laughs> who are you to tell us where to go? <laughs> but but one of them, he approached me and he said, well, can we have a meeting? Because I do think that there's some truth in what you're saying. And I would be interested in listening to what you what you have to say. So that's what we did. We had, had this meeting together with their presenter, which was a pretty famous guy in the Netherlands. And they said, okay, let's make a deal Whenever you have something that you think is worthwhile, just give us a call and we'll make sure that we broadcast it and we'll see if we can do something in return in terms of fundraising. And that really was a game changer because by then that, that really meant that, well, our financial basis became a little bit more healthy and we could improve animal welfare. We could pay for our vet. We could buy the vegetables that we needed and the fruits. And also, we could try to put some money aside for new construction for the new facility. And that's the facility that we're still in at in in, in, Omiere, uh, in the Netherlands. So it, it, that was really, I mean, if Gerard Baars, at that moment, together with Martin Gauss, would have not stepped in and would have said, OK, we'll adopt you, then probably we wouldn't be where we are now. And uh, yeah. So you can also see that sometimes there's these small kind of things, me writing this letter and not really know where to go and then one of those guys picking up this letter and saying well might be worthwhile listening to uh, this person so funny things uh, can be uh, of real uh, real big importance
1: Wow what a lovely and really unexpected story that's that's so touching that you took those steps and so anyway in Almere your center in the Netherlands which you mentioned um, is where you're still located today you have quite a number of these laboratory animals that you look after could you tell the listeners about those animals in particular
0: well as an organization we had always been rescuing laboratory animals but i also had this uncomfortable feeling that i was never quite sure whether the animals that we would take would be replaced by other animals once we had left the room in some cases I almost had the feeling that we were taking care of the rubbish of the pharmaceutical companies or of universities and it felt uncomfortable because who was there to secure that no replacement could take place and that's the moment where we started to think well we have to work on sustainable solutions because if we don't have sustainable solutions then it might be that we are even enhancing the problem by helping them to take away the old animals so they can buy new ones and that story. Uh, really changed when we started to work on the biomedical primate research center here in the Netherlands, which is one of the biggest primate holding facilities in Europe. And they were still having chimpanzees. And together with a British person, Janie Reynolds, we started to campaign against the use of these chimpanzees in, in experiments, the people against chimpanzee experiments base. And this campaign became quite successful. So at some point, we were invited with the Ministry of Education in the Netherlands, and uh, and he was talking to us and saying, well, what is it that you want? And we said, well, we want those animals out. But secondly, or most importantly, we want legislation which will forbid the future use of of apes in pharmaceutical or medical experiments So to make sure that no replacement would take place. And he was saying, well, that's a, a long shot because I don't know if Parliament will adopt that kind of legislation. But, well, I'm willing to see if we can not uh, push it through. And that's what happened. So the Netherlands was the first country in the world having a ban on the use of uh, apes in experimental research. And uh, as a result, we could rescue the remaining chimpanzees that were still being kept in the, in the facility. The animals are infected with HIV, hepatitis C, so they will never, never, ever be able to be outplaced or rehomed elsewhere. So we were able to take um, those uh, 28 or 29 at the time chimpanzees, and um, we built a facility for them. And I must say, I'm still, whenever I go there and I visit those animals, I can see how what wonderful kind of life they have compared to the life they had in this laboratory where they were closed in between concrete walls with no daylight, sitting there in their cells, waiting for horrible things to happen. And now they're experiencing huge outside enclosures. They're screaming. They're enjoying their food. They're playing with each other. They have really become playful chimps again. So I'm happy for them, but also, or more important, I'm happy that no other animals will be taken from Africa, brought to the Netherlands to be enclosed in uh, in this confinement because that was really unpleasant uh, to watch that and to witness that.
1: So these chimpanzees, how is it they actually end up in a laboratory like you described in the first place?
0: Still, there's a lot of scientific research institutes that just order their animals somewhere in the world, and that's what they actually did. At some point, they ordered chimpanzees in uh, West Africa. The majority of them came from Nigeria. So they ordered, let's say, 50 young chimpanzees of a certain uh, age group in between one and two years old, which means... All these smugglers and all these poachers will go into the forest and they will shoot whatever they can get. And they will bring all those animals to Nigeria in order to fill that supply, which is, I mean, I can't even imagine how many animals were killed during the capture of those young ones. Because no mother or father will abandon its child, not with people, but also not with chimpanzees. So you you will have to kill the whole group in order to obtain one or two of those youngsters, which means that this has been a huge killing field in West Africa. Just because a laboratory orders 40 or 50 young chimpanzees, and then a few years later they had used them. That's a, it's a horrible world, but that's that's really what they did. They used them, and they um, they were done with them, and then they just ordered new ones. So that's. How that was done in those days, and nowadays breed them, so they have facilities, most of the laboratories have facilities to breed their own supply, not with chimpanzees in the Netherlands anymore, but yes, with other animals, yes, they do. But in those days, they were just taken from the wild and, uh, and brought to the Netherlands to, uh, to spend the rest of their lives in um, barren cages, uh, waiting for the experiments to come.
1: So do you think these chimpanzees who've gone through something like that can actually understand their experience? I mean, like, how do they go through it and how do they cope with what happens?
0: Um, yeah, well, whenever I meet chimpanzees, I always wonder what happened. that They are behind one side of the bars and I am on the other side because it's it's like a little twist somewhere in history and and the odds might have been the other way around, that we would have been in cages and they would be outside. eh? So with chimpanzees, you always wonder how much they know and how much they experience. They definitely know that something horrible is going to happen. Whenever they see someone with a white coat entering with plastic glasses on, uh, with a syringe in their hand. they know they're going to be hurt. They know exactly what's going to happen. And they know that they will have to cope with it because they can't resist it because the steel bars will hold them and there's no escape. So the most horrible thing that you can see with those chimpanzees that at some point they give up resistance. Uh, Well, it's a term in behavioral science called learned helplessness, and they will just give over. But it also means that it's like an animal that's broken so they uh, they don't know how to cope with this horror anymore and they just lie on their back and they let it happen no matter how much pain it uh, inflicts on them so that's what you can see with those chimpanzees and that's really what is the most difficult thing also to change over time and uh, still we have a few of those animals that have a, a horrible display of abnormal behavior which means that they are rocking so they're sitting on their bumps and moving their body to the right to the left to the right to the left day long they are regurgitating all their food constantly because they were so bored in those uh, enclosures that the only thing they could do was to regurgitate and to re-eat their food to eat their own feces Uh, not because they like it but because there's nothing else to be done they're using their feces to paint the walls of the, the enclosures not because they like it because they had nothing else to do so it's it's that kind of behavior that tells me that these animals are really badly hurt in those kind of facilities. And, and also, I'm very much opposed to the use of animals in scientific research, because I also think that the results don't tell us too much, and the risks that we are learning the wrong things is pretty big. But especially the use of those intelligent animals really is bad for the animals and uh, uh, is something that should be avoided any time, I would say.
1: When these chimpanzees arrived in your sanctuary from the laboratory, um, how would you say they felt?
0: I would say they felt lost. They were completely not up to the space that we were giving them, the freedom that we were giving them, the fact that they were given food several times a day, the fact that they were not being hurt anymore. First months after arrival, they were still silent. It was almost painful to witness. Because you could see that they they had been in this confinement for so, so long, never been out there. So as a little kid, they were put in this closet and the door had never been opened again. For them, the the space and the freedom was almost more than they could cope with. Uh, The only beautiful thing that we could see that on the first evening, we left them out of their crates into the enclosures group by group. And we were wondering what the first thing was that they were going to do. And they had been in these steel cages where they had no enrichment. They had no nesting materials or nothing. It was really quite barren what they had had. And when evening came at about 5 o'clock in the evening, and chimpanzees are lazy animals. They want to have a long night. So at 5 o'clock in the evening, they go to bed. And we were wondering, what is it they're going to do? So we had put in blankets, and we had put in hay, and we had put in other materials that they could use. And immediately, you could see that they were moving to the higher spaces in the enclosure, which the enclosures are pretty high, six meters high. And they were collecting their blankets. They were collecting the garden boxes. They were collecting paper. They were collecting hay. And they started to build nests. And it's so beautiful to see that they had never been, they had not been in, in a natural environment for, some were there for 30 years already, and still their first instinct or their first thing was, oh, finally, we can build a nest again, and we can tuck ourselves in and go to bed. They had not been able to do that for 30 years, and that was the first uh, thing they did, so that was beautiful to see. Yeah, but still, I mean, also, that's the good news. The bad news is that some of the learned behavior some of the abnormal behavior uh, which is quite harmful for them as well because the regurgitating really hurts their esophagus, but also makes their teeth burn it's like people with bulimia not good but still some of that is difficult to uh, get rid of because it's so imprinted in their minds and this is what they do and uh, for some we've been able to change that but for others it's still quite difficult
1: Can you identify the reasons why some of them made some good transitions while the others haven't really found it so simple?
0: Well, to be honest, what we have learned over the years is that animals that have had some maternal upbringing have more possibilities to cope with their stress than animals that have, for instance, been captive bred and been uh, raised by people. So the fact that some of them have spent one or two years with their mothers in nature means that they are far more capable of coping with the stress than the majority of the animals that have been captive bred and who've been taken from their mothers at birth immediately to be raised by people. So it seems that this is one of the main differences between their coping behavior and their stress uh, levels, where we would have thought If you would have asked me before we encountered these uh, chimpanzees, I would have said it would be the other way around. Animals that have been in nature, they have experienced natural life and probably I would have said, well, rather raise them in captivity so that they don't know what wildlife is and they don't know what they've missed. But apparently the raising by your parents is more, even more important than the fact whether you encountered natural life in West Africa or not. So that, that's something we're still learning. We, we see this, by the way, with other animals as well. Huh? So uh, for instance, with parrots, uh, you can see the same thing. If you have parrots that are hand raised, their stress behavior is far worse than with parrots that have been caught from the wild. And and that's probably for the same reason, because their imprinting has gone wrong. They are imprinted on people. I mean, that's not good because we are not their mates. We are, we are different species.
1: So from here, I really like to turn a little bit more to AAP, the organization. Could you describe AAP or APP and what the organization does?
0: AP is a rescue center, so uh, from origin we rescue animals. But like I said, it's difficult to rescue animals knowing that the animals that you're rescuing could be replaced afterwards. So when time went by, we moved from being a rescue center to becoming an animal welfare organization, and that's also where the name comes from, animal advocacy and protection. So it's not only that we want to rescue those animals. It's mostly that we would like to see that the legislation around those animals is being approved and that the enforcement of the legislation is being improved, not only in the Netherlands, but in the rest of Europe as well. Just to give you an example, last week, a little lion cup was found in the Netherlands, abandoned somewhere in, uh, alongside the road. Uh, there was a bench with a little lion cup in there. And it was rescued, by the way, not by there it, it went to another organization. But that's, for me, that's not really very important. We were called and we, we made sure that the animal was being rescued. And uh, that's, that's the end of it. But the most important thing is that if you go back into the history of this little lion cub and you're trying to find out where it comes from, you find that it comes from a circus, which is not even operating in the Netherlands, but in other European countries, That circus went to Belgium, they sold their lion cup to a guy who also had all kind of other animals. And this guy felt that the authorities might do a raid raid with him and uh, confiscate the animals. And therefore he suddenly sold his animals, one of his animals, to a Dutch guy who came by and brought it to the Netherlands. So by the time this lion cup is four months old, We already have four countries being, or three or four countries being involved in this whole case within Europe. And that means that European legislation is ever so important. It's so important that we harmonize our legislation, like the Belgian legislation needs to be harmonized with the Dutch, and the Dutch legislation needs to be harmonized with the Spanish. If we don't do that, then we cannot protect those animals properly. So that's what I see as the main job for AAP not only taking care of the individual animals but most importantly take care of their protection and well animal advocacy and protection so that's what what i see for the future uh, as our main challenge another example could be the barbary macaques we have been rescuing over the last 30 35 years and it was a never ending uh, stream of animals coming our way, being confiscated in all different European countries. And they all came to us and we were so happy that we could help them. But we started to wonder where do these animals come from? What's their origin? Can we do anything to stop this whole flow of animals coming our way? And that's how we started to work in Morocco where these animals are being poached on a far too high level. And the poaching had gone so far that almost barbary macaques had gone extinct. So we have to make sure that we do not only take care of the animals within our rescue centers, but also that we make sure that there's no new animals coming in. And at some point, we might even close our doors and say, well, our job has been done. Wild animals are being protected. In the ideal world, that would be the case. eh? Then we could just say, let's look for another job or or stop with what we're doing because it's no longer needed. And that would be yeah, a dream come true. Have
1: you actually met these people who do keep the animals illegally? For instance, like these people you mentioned in the story of the lion cub. I mean, I just wonder why they do this because really to most of us, it would seem like a really weird idea to keep a lion cub or a, or a chimp in our basement.
0: Yeah, and on the other hand, I meet quite a few of those people, and some of them you don't want to relate to because they're gangsters or they're mafiosi kind of uh, people uh, well that's a different ball game but there's also quite a few people who they might be a little bit ignorant or they might be there might be something wrong with them somehow, but on the other hand, some of them they just, they adore animals and they just go a little bit the wrong route. There's this beautiful video on YouTube of these two guys buying a lion cup somewhere in London, I think, and finally bringing it to Africa. And then years later, they return to Africa to look what happened to their lion cup. And the lion cup was a full-grown male lion by then. And he recognized them immediately and he jumps on, on them and starts to play with them. I mean, if you look at that video, people are amazed and they feel so happy for the animal and they uh, and for these people who uh, brought them to Africa. But it started with these stupid people bought a lion cup, and that's the uh, still there's so many people who want to own animals and who want to have animals in their hands, they want to feel them, they want to have be near to them. I mean this guy who bought this lion cup in the Netherlands probably thought well. I know somewhere in my mind that this is going to be a full-grown lion who's going to eat me, but still, I want to have it. Within people that is so strong, this need of owning things, of having things. So I'm a little bit afraid also that education for those kind of people will never work because whoever on this earth does not know that a lion cub becomes a lion. So education will not solve this problem you really need strong legislation and and also a thorough follow-up of that that legislation. So the enforcement needs to be strict as well. No exceptions. If things go wrong, immediately act on it. And well, that's the only way it works. So for me, it shows that people are pretty ignorant if it comes to animals. They still have to uh, learn quite a bit. Well, Strong legislation throughout all of Europe, in my opinion the best thing that we could, uh, that we could do for
1: them. So on your website, you speak about this difference of belief about what animals are, and to quote, you say, app believes animals are sentient, independent beings. And then you compare that with the legal system of the European Union that views animals as goods. This latter perspective, seeing animals as goods, is that what needs to change for the legislation to work well?
0: The idea of looking at animals as goods is a problem, of course, because it also, for instance, if you're you're looking at confiscation of animals, for instance, then you can see that everything that has been thought out for confiscated goods counts for animals as well. So that's one of the reasons why we think that animals as goods is not the right way to approach uh, things. We should be looking at animals as sentient beings. This weekend, I had a uh, on Twitter, I had a discussion with a person who was saying that we were, we were having a discussion about protection of animals, and she was describing the fact that she was looking out of the window, and there was this rat, and the rat had a paralyzed, its hind limbs were paralyzed, and she said, well, I couldn't put myself to caring for this animal because it was a rat, and then I said, well, well no matter whether it's a rat or a squirrel or a primate or a lion cub, I mean... The suffering of animals, it hurts me. Uh, for me, that's no matter whether it's a rat or a sparrow or whatever. The fact that it is a rare animal doesn't really uh, work with me. I see an animal and I see an animal in need. In this case, I think the animal cannot be helped. So I would rather put it down than see it suffer for <clears throat> one or two days longer. But that's my personal belief. That's my personal feeling. Yeah, I would, I would like to see that changed in legislation so that we don't see animals as goods anymore and uh, that we would consider them more sentient beings. And I must say that huge steps have been taken already. Yeah? So the, the Treaty of Lisbon, the European Treaty of Lis- Lisbon says that animals are sentient beings. That doesn't really yet mean that legislation is also translated to this concept, but at least the recognition is there, and I think that this is the first step. And I must say, I'm being considered to be an extreme optimist, so I always see the opportunities and I always see possibilities for change, and in that sense, sometimes I'm a little bit too optimistic. But I think in the coming years, we might see some big changes still to happen, and I want to be part of that. I want to make sure that I've done whatever I can. To see these uh, changes uh, happening and and also see for my organization and also for my colleague organizations i see a big role because i think that by telling the stories of the animals that we rescue we can really change the hearts of people around us because if we tell the stories of our animals if we give them names if we if we show what they encountered, the hardship they've come through, then I really think that this will in the end also change the behaviour of people.
1: Yeah, so I remember Jane Goodall was really the first person to start giving chimpanzees names when she studied them. And at the time, all the other researchers were giving chimpanzees numbers. Do you think that's a reason for her being able to do the kind of new research that really broke some boundaries and that she's recognised for?
0: Yeah, but she's been ahead of time always. Uh, I know her very well. We are good friends, and I admire her extremely. She has been one of those people who really changed the world with respect to animals, but also with respect to how we look at our environment and our caring capacities. What she did is she made individuals out of animals, and she gave them appealing names, and also she spoke about them in a caring way. So from Jane, I learned that we shouldn't talk about caretakers anymore as people who take care of animals, but they're caregivers. And it's so beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's, it looks like, like semantics, but it's not. We are allowed to take care of these animals, but we are we're giving them something. And it's beautiful. So, yes, I think that she has really made a big change and also, uh, scientific world really was angry with her because of this, because they saw this, this woman without a scientific background and she was just ignoring all the rules of science and in a way uh, she was by giving these animals names she was also saying listen these animals that you are killing in name of science they are individuals and by giving them names she made it quite difficult for people to just ignore the fact that they were killing time and uh, over over and over again they were killing individual animals uh, with family and with fathers and mothers, friends and enemies, children, aunts and uncles, then it becomes a different story. eh? If you just take one out and you kill it because you have a scientific approach or a scientific question, this is um, different than uh, when it has a number from when it has got a name, has become an individual.
1: You also say that your approach is to talk about the issues you know about and to show alternatives rather than being an activist, as it were. What is it that you mean by that? Could you give us an example? Well, first
0: of all, I'm not against activists. And on the contrary, I do think that activists can play an extremely important role, especially by addressing issues. So I work shoulder by shoulder with activists on different issues, and I see that their influence can sometimes be huge. But I also see that at some point, there's the need of organizations that are a little bit closer to civil servants, to politicians, that are a little bit more able to create a bridge between the offenders and the other side of the world. And that's where I see a role for my organization. So we are a rescue center. We cannot take the side of an activist being too strong in our opinions, because that also means that we could jeopardize the animals that we take care of. So... For instance, if we would be very, very strong activists campaigning against the use of wild animals in laboratory or in science, then no laboratory would ever be willing to hand over their animals to us. So we have to know our role and our position in this chess game. And so sometimes we are a little bit more on the background and sometimes we are a little bit more up And And usually we try to stay away from the barricades and we let others do that part of the work. And as long as you respect these different roles, and if you realize that they are there, then I do think there's a place for for both of us. Huh? So the activists sometimes can go a little bit further in order to allow us to make a sort of a, an, an agreement with government uh, saying, well, we didn't gain the full 100%, but at least we've gone, let's say 70 or 80% along the way, which means that we are able to make a change Though not the full change that could be inefficient.
1: So, App has two sanctuaries that look after primates and exotic animals. Could you describe both the centres to us? Like, how big are the operations? How do you run them efficiently? How do you make the chimpanzees as happy as possible for their life there?
0: At the moment, we have a sanctuary here in the Netherlands, which is the place where it all started, and we have a sanctuary in Spain. And actually, it's not as much sanctuaries as it is their rescue centers. So we are based on the principle of halfway houses. So we don't try to keep the animals here for the rest of their lives. If there's another future for them elsewhere, we are happy to give them off to another facility. So, if, for instance, if a zoo would be willing to take a group of animals from us and if they would live by the standards that we have put down, then we are happy to collaborate because we always hope that we will be able to rescue more animals. The difference between the Spanish and, uh, and the Dutch organization is mainly that within the Netherlands, we rescue every species of mammals below 100 kilograms, and in Spain, we can also rescue animals bigger than 100 kilos. So that means that big cats can only be rescued in uh, in Spain and not in the Netherlands. So our permits here in the Netherlands is limited to 100 kilos, more or less, and um, in Spain it's not. But also. If you look at the setup of the facilities, then you can easily see that within the Netherlands, it's like we're doing our work on a post stamp. So the space is very limited. In the Netherlands, there's a lot of people living here, and there's only very little space available. We have about seven hectares of space here where we have to do all our work. And in Spain, space is no issue. So we have a sanctuary or a rescue center there, which has in total, I think, 230 hectares and some of the terrains we have never never even visited uh, because they're somewhere high in the mountains. And yeah, no one ever told us where the borders of our terrains are. Uh, so so that's a big difference. But also, yeah, the big cats is quite a bit different. It gives a completely different atmosphere. So if I walk around there and I hear the lions roar, that's, that is so amazing, that is so beautiful. We've organized in such a way that the animal care departments, for instance, they all work together. So we have one head of animal care. And this person is not only supervising the work in the Netherlands, but also supervising the work in Spain. And by doing that so like this, we make sure that the expertise that is built up in the Netherlands can also be used in Spain. And the other way around, the same thing. Things that we've learned in Spain can also be used in the Netherlands. And I must say, to some extent, that does really work. The only problem that we encounter is the cultural difference, because Spain and the Netherlands, I do think that there's quite a bit of difference between the two countries. Spain is a rather high hierarchic, uh, so whatever the boss says is being done. And in the Netherlands, you can discuss about everything over and over and over again, which makes it sometimes very uh, difficult to... To just make a decision because people will always question your decision and they will keep asking questions in spain that would be impossible because then you would be fired <laughs> so people don't discuss with you but they might completely disagree so that sometimes gives us some some headaches because then we think we've heard a yes but you can see by the non communication that the answer is actually no but that answer doesn't come out because we, as Dutch, we're just opposing the question, and they, as Spanish, they give the answer that they think that you want to hear so <laughs> so that is yeah, it's learning by doing, and some things cannot be bridged; they are just different in different countries, and uh, we'll just have to live with that. We have uh, about one hundred and twenty people working for us on the payroll, and there's about Three to 400 people working with us as volunteers or trainees or different ways of employment. But we all organize them within departments. And every person has a very good description of what is being expected from him or her. And that means that also volunteers who come to work with us for a short period of time, they learn quite rapidly some of the basics of animal care. and. And when they leave again, I think they have learned something which they will take along for the rest of their lives. So it's interesting to see how that works and how we've learned when time went by to make use of these volunteers in a very effective way, whereas in the past, sometimes the differences between paid and non-paid staff would be quite big and people would feel not really appreciated as a volunteer within the organization and nowadays that has changed and that's one of the things that I'm really proud of because it used to be yeah that used to be a problem and we turned it into more like an opportunity when time went by.
1: So if people are hearing this episode and the stories and they'd like to help somehow you know maybe they don't have much time or they don't know how to get started what can they do?
0: Well the easy thing to say would be Please donate <laughs> because that by donating, you're facilitating others to do the work that you cannot do yourself. So sometimes I have donors visiting up and they say, well, I would have loved to do the work here myself. And then I say, well, be aware of the fact that by giving us your donation, you're enabling other people to do the work, well, sometimes that's even better, because not all these people would be capable of doing that work. So it's pretty hard work, eh? so the animal care, for instance, my God, these people are really working their butts off every day, cleaning and cleaning and cleaning and cleaning, and the next day again, cleaning, 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 it's, it's it's sometimes it's so, it's, it's, it's boring work. Now, So, that's the easy thing, donate. But also, the other thing that I would like to say to people is be aware of your own behavior by encouraging things that are bad for animal welfare, if it is about livestock uh, that's being slaughtered or whether it is about animals in a circus or if it is about other things. Uh, We just started a campaign recently do not share this image, and it is about all these celebrities constantly being photographed with a lion cup in their arms or a snake around their necks or a parrot on their shoulder or a, a raptor in their hands. Please, please don't share those kind of images as if it were to be normal for those animals to be uh, to be kept in those kind of circumstances. No, it is not normal and it's not good. It's horrible. And if we're sharing those images, we are just acting as if this celebrity is our role model and therefore it's okay that he or she has a monkey on on her shoulder or in her arms. That's not good. So it's not only that people can donate, it's also that people can, in their behavior, they can do things that will be beneficial for animals. Don't go to a circus with wild animals anymore. Just let them be and finally it will stop all over Europe and then they will not sell any lion cubs anymore. So Please be aware of of our actions. Try to buy as much biological food as you can in order to make sure that the future of our children is being secured as well because uh, not only the welfare of our animals but also the the planet being uh, taken care of in a little bit better way than we did when we were young. So I hope we can uh, change the world uh, a little little bit uh, by giving those kind of examples.
1: Okay, just one last question I really want to ask you what is it that you've seen change during your career in terms of what we know and what we realize now about animals and chimpanzees?
0: Two things. When I started as a volunteer, just the law that forbids the keeping of primates as a pet had just been implemented. In those days, people really thought it was stupid to have this kind of law. People said, well, what kind of government does forbid me to keep this primate as a pet? So that was by then, 1980. Nowadays, if someone keeps a primate as a pet within 24 hours, we will know that. Within 24 hours, the surroundings of this person will have given us a call and said, please go there and capture that animal because it's being abused and something has gone wrong there. So in the attitude of people, things are changing in a good way. Same thing we saw in the circus world. When we started to campaign against the use of wild animals in entertainment, In the Netherlands, about 15 to 16% of the people would have voted against the use of wild animals in entertainment. And then we started to tell the stories of those animals, how they suffered, what happened to them, what's their history, and also what's their future. And that meant that we could see this change in attitude of people, not at once. That takes years and years. You have to be patient, and you have to keep telling the stories. And sometimes you're really disappointed by what people are doing. But at some point, we changed from 15%, 16% to 70% of the Dutch population. 70% was voting in favor of a ban of the use of wild animals and entertainment. And then it happened. Then the ban came. So politicians are usually following the voters, and we are the voters. Your listeners are the voters. My donors are the voters. Europeans, uh, whether they're British, Scottish, Welsh, or Dutch, doesn't really matter. We are living in Europe, and we are influencing the policymakers around us. So I've seen huge changes over the last few decades, and I think there are still some, some changes to come. And, well, like I said, I would like to be part of trying to see if some of those changes can be influenced by us and other animal welfareists as well. Oh. So, I, so I see that there's some work to be done still.
1: Well, that's a wrap, and I must say that conversation with David left me feeling quite upbeat and hopeful despite the fact that we discussed a lot of really quite difficult things. So I think especially when he described those poor chimpanzees getting to the state that they just regurgitate their food out of boredom and they knew what was coming when those people in white lab coats appeared, I was just close to tears. But with people like him around, I do think it's possible we're going to see even more changing attitudes to taking wild animals from the jungles. I think he had a really good point regarding wild animals being seen as something normal to have in your Instagram feed. I remember in episode two of The Other Five Billion, it's called A Husky History, Andy Cullen from an organisation called The Dublin Husky Rescue said that he thought celebrities posing with these cute little dogs contributed to this just unbelievable number of huskies that appeared in Ireland over the last seven or eight years. And those dogs went to owners who really had an idealised view of what a husky was and they had no idea how to care for them. So then the point was that Andy had this huge queue of huskies needing to be rescued and during his really quite short career he's already rescued over 700 and still counting. I find myself coming to a conclusion at the end of another episode and reflecting on different content, different context, but getting the same takeaway. And that takeaway is that through little actions that we can take ourselves, little judgments, we can really change the fate of one animal, a few animals, or even an entire species by being a little bit more conscious. And what I'm starting to learn as I get more podcast episodes under my belt is that we actually have a lot more power to change things than we realize. And there are people like David, her making it even easier for us to do that. So to stay in touch with app with David and learn more about his team, just go to aap.nl for the Netherlands and you're going to find the website in, let's see, several languages. We've got Dutch, English and Spanish. And of course they have things like newsletters an adoption program, wonderful Facebook. And I think even just if you want to go there and learn, is a wonderful resource. So that's it from me. I will be back next time with actually more stories of chimpanzees because we really have a lot to learn and tell about our closest cousins. If you'd like to suggest a species for me to cover in a future episode, just get in touch with me. Perhaps you want to share some of your stories about animals or just want to say hi. You can write to me at Olga at other5billion.com Com. You can also find and contact me on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching for The Other 5 Billion Podcast. Or you can find me, Olga Pavlovsky, at Lplate Big Cheese. Please do subscribe to The Other 5 Billion Podcast on iTunes, the Google Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. And all that's left to say is thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it and until next time.